Gary V came to Brisbane. A friend invited me to Gary V and I went down to the event. What stuck with me was when he said, just fucking start. I went home. On the drive home, man, I don't know what came over me. I just was like, okay, I'm going to start an agency. Started messaging, phoning, texting, emailing everyone I knew. Within days, I had a pile of clients and I was able to start monetizing my business. You know, we were constantly living in the back of a car, setting up tent sites. I remember just waking up in just completely random environments, you know, at the age of like three, four, five, six. I did the math. I went to uh, 38 different schools over the entirety of my youth. I bounced between foster care and being back with my mother and I believe in energy. I can't explain it, man. When you start to really get into an energetic state, I don't know if things start to shift. I'm yet to have a conversation with someone that's achieved success in business or life, whatever their chosen field is, that isn't extremely connected to their own spiritual and personal growth journey. Wow. Hi, my name is Dane Walker and this is Life, Money and Love. Just quickly before we get started, guys, if you've been enjoying the podcast, can I please ask that you consider leaving a five-star review and subscribing on whatever platform you've been listening. It really helps the podcast grow. Back again, Dane Walker. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Our little chill setup in here. It's going to be a good conversation. Uh, this is so applicable for everyone in, in, any, in any line of business. I know a lot of the people we have on are e-com founders, but when I say Dane is a branding expert, he is a genuine branding expert, one of the, one of the most um, at the forefront people in the education space for branding. You've built over a half a million followers just by putting out educational pieces of content on your Instagram in a few years. Now you've got your agency, one of the fastest, well, the fastest growing branding agency in Australia, Rival. Uh, anyone looking it up, it's, it's a Y at the end instead of the A. Um, sick website, you're working with billion dollar brands doing deals worth over six figures. So really, really ingrained with branding and marketing and how, how brands can position themselves. So I obviously want to chat to you about all that, pick your brain, get into the in, inside your head and start understanding all the things that people can do to elevate their own brand, um, on a personal level as well, because you've done some really great work in the personal brand space. So we'll touch on all of that, but obviously we've got to get to know you a little bit. Tell us. Tell us how you got to where you are today. Like, I know you've had an interesting journey. You've worked a lot of really interesting jobs, but take us back to, to the start. Um, I want to get to know who you are and, and, and how this uh, amazing mind of yours worked. I, real, I, I, I did some reading on you and, and read that you actually missed, what, 70% of your schooling and you, and you mm. bounced around a little bit from foster care. Talk to me about what that experience was like and did those different experiences that most people would have shaped the way you are today, the way you see the world, the way you think. Yeah, I think so. Like as a, as a child, um, my mother, uh, man, we're going deep right away. Dude. Dude, I love it, man. <laughs> no yeah. So it shaped my character, right? So like, I look at all of this stuff in the past as like, like a big positive thing. Um, but yeah, my mother, so she, she had a lot of stuff going on and she resorted to, you know, drug and alcoholism, um, to kind of suppress, you know, her, her emotions and things like that. So as a kid, you know, we were constantly living in the back of a car, um, setting up tent sites. I remember just waking up in just completely random environments, you know, at the age of like three, four, five, six. So kind of nomadic, my mother was constantly moving from place to place. And when I started going to schooling, that didn't really discontinue. So we would live somewhere we would set up three months later, we'd move six months later, we'd move again. So as a kid, I was constantly moving schools and, you know, for Australian schools, we always have different curriculums at different times of the year. So I'd be out of school learning about insects and then I'd move to another school and they're in the middle of their math curriculum and then move schools. And then I think I did the math. I went to uh, 38 different schools over the entirety of my youth. And what this, I guess, imprinted into me was, um, you know, I never had like a circle or a friendship network or a family 
I always kind of resorted to my imagination. And because, you know, we weren't able to settle anywhere, I would resort to expressing myself through art, through drawing, through, um, you know, pop culture, watching movies and stuff like that when I was a kid. So I just, I had my imagination because I always didn't have friends. And I think that built a part of my brain that was quite clever and creative um, that comes naturally to me, whereas it feels maybe forced for some others. Um, but then after that, um, my mother's alcoholism got worse and then she ended up, um, you know, getting reported by friends for not necessarily taking good care of me. Uh, and at the age of six, I started to go to, um, these different programs from like church groups and stuff like that, where like the Salvation Army, um, where they took me in and they tried to help my mother and then she couldn't be helped. So then they put me with, um, family friends and I stayed with them for, I think like four months. Then my mother got me back. It worsened. And then they put me into foster care. Um, so I bounced between foster care and being back with my mother and foster care and back with my mother. So again, this kind of continued, I constantly moved environments and, um, I don't know. It just made me have a thick skin. I could deal with tremendous amounts of stress and be pretty Zen about it. So running an agency is pretty, pretty crazy, man. And you know, there's constantly balls in the air that are being juggled. You know, we're doing logos, we're doing naming, we're doing websites, content, like there's a lot going on. And I think in most, most cases people would stress out, but I find my calm when there's noise, when there's chaos and I find a rhythm in that. So for me, it's, it's weird. It's kind of become as much as it was a hindrance in my childhood, it's become somewhat of a propellant to help me be hyper adaptive, hypersensitive to people. Um, and because I grew up around domestic violence, they say that people that are in those situations become hypersensitive to people's emotions, people's body language, their reactions to things. Um, so I was just hypersensitive to reading people. And a lot about branding is being able to get a good gauge on the business owner when they're lying to you, when they're telling you the truth, when they're uncomfortable, when they're comfortable. So I can constantly read where someone is and that really helps me lead them through the creative process. So again, I draw a linkage from what I currently do right back to my childhood. Um, but yeah, being able to handle lots of stress, being able to adapt to constant change um, feels weirdly comfortable to me. I think that comes from my childhood. Um, past that, um, you know, being in high school, uh, changing schools all the time was tough, but I was getting straight A's in engineering, architecture and graphic design and just, just flat D's in everything else. And, um, the teachers would find it frustrating because if I loved the topic, I'd crush it. And if I didn't interest myself in it, I would just not even try. Um, but that's because I missed majority of my schooling. I didn't have that muscle to push through things I didn't like. Um, so again, when I started to, when I left high school, um, I went into the workforce and I was working in retail and I had like, you know, small jobs like pushing trolleys at supermarkets and, um, you know, doing removalist jobs and stuff like that. But it, my first kind of real job was working in a t-shirt shop and it was in a place called the Sunshine Plaza on the Sunshine Coast. And it was in like a shopping mall. So we had lots of foot traffic, like thousands of people walking past all day. And we made merch and band shirts and um, just funny joke shirts and silly things for like bucks parties and hands parties and stuff like that. So by nature, being behind a computer all day with the Adobe suite, Illustrator, Photoshop, um, uh, and you know different software to print, press, heat press, and print screen t-shirts, 
I just felt like I was in my environment. And um, the cool thing was every day I got to come in and ideate and create t-shirts I think would sell in the store, change the merchandise in the windows. Um, I helped build the e-com store for the store. Um, we did marketing and content and I just found myself attracted to creating content for the page, reading what worked and what didn't work. Um, you know, orienting myself to try to get the algorithm to pick up the piece of content and to get people to comment. So when I was 19, I was doing social media management. I was building a website. I was doing photography for t-shirts, uploading it to the website, designing uh, merch. And then what would happen is in the store, business owners would come in and they would say, look, I want a, a logo for my carpentry business. Like, can you just like mash these letters together and put a, a roof on it? And uh, bands would come in and say, you know, I want a, 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 a unicorn juggling chainsaws for the show we're doing. And I would go home and sketch the illustration and then um, put it into Illustrator and design it. So like I had no training. I just would use YouTube. I'd read um, articles online on how to do things. And I was just behind a computer all day, every day, serving customers, selling merch, um, managing a retail store and, and all of the social media side of things. So it just, I guess I kind of built that muscle then. It just came naturally to me. And I think it was just because I was bored, to be honest. And I have a big imagination. Um, after that, I went into the sales industry for um, quite a long time. Um, and then I was uh, selling, I ended up selling vacuums in a vacuum store, Godfrey's. Um, so for those who don't know, it's like uh, you go into the store, you get people to sit on a couch, you give them a coffee and then you start pulling out these $3,000 vacuums. Um, and everyone comes into a vacuum store and says, I just want to, I just want a $50 vacuum. You know what I mean? I don't want anything crazy. <laughs> and we would say, take a seat. Here's a coffee. We can get you a $50 vacuum. Like, let me turn it on, plug it in. Um, I'd make jokes like, look how short the cable is. Uh, I'd say hop up. I'd sprinkle sand on the, on the carpet and rub the sand into, you couldn't see it like floated down into the underlays. And then you turn the suction up and then they just couldn't even use it on the carpet. And they would say, this vacuum is terrible. And we say, we know. Um, <laughs> I'd pull out a $3,000 vacuum, hand that to them. And that thing like was basically like a ballerina dancing across the carpet. It was just perfect. And they would go, oh my God, this is great. How much is it for this vacuum? And it, you know, $2,500. It was this giant gold plated monstrosity called a Salba. And they would scoff at the price and they'd say, that's <laughs> ridiculous. And then I would say, look, I've got a $700 option. Um, that does the same thing and they'd buy that. So I started learning sales. I started learning psychology, negotiation, sales techniques. I was reading books on it. Um, I got really good at it. And then the CEO of world gym Australia came into the store. His name is Nathan James. Um, he said, I've got a serious problem with puke on the mats in the gym. So, uh, I said, look, let me just bring some chemicals. Let me bring some machines. I'll come in and I'll just start messing around with, um, what could get the puke out of the mats. It's a big problem. Well, Jim, uh, people thrown up. So I went in there and I was testing different chemicals on the puke and trying to get the smell out and trying to get the stains out and all the rest of it. And I was like, you know, you need this machine and this chemical with the machine. And then you need to spray it with this afterwards and leave it for 20 minutes and then spray this for the odor. And then, you know, you're golden, mate. You don't have any puke on your mats anymore. Um, and as soon as I finished my, my pitch to him, he bought the machine. I created him an itinerary. I was like, these are the things you need to do. Give it to your cleaner. They can, they can just copy the sheet. And he said, can I give you a job? 
<laughs> so I got hired at World Gym. Um, fast forward, um, after two weeks of being a sales rep, he made me the sales manager. And then a couple of weeks after that, he promoted me to helping manage a club uh, out in a country town. Um, and then when I went out to that club, I took the the gym from about 32 sales a month um, to in the hundreds of sales a month uh, within the period of like, like six weeks. Um, I fired the sales team, hired new people. I, I put a lot of my blood, sweat and tears into the business, did social media, helped them out with tremendous amounts of like advertising and things like that. And it just wasn't working out for me. I just, I felt like I was going through, um, a rolling pattern. Um, I wanted to start a business. I just didn't know what I decided to leave the country town, came back, started working at Telstra. Um, and while I was at Telstra, I was just thinking about what I might want to do. I stumbled upon Chris Doe on YouTube. He was teaching design teaching. I just started taking his courses cause it was interesting. Um, and then Gary V came to Brisbane. So, um, a friend invited me to Gary V and, uh, and I went down to the event and then, um, yeah, it was, there was about 5,000 people in the room, absolute snoozeville, just a sales marathon from all these different speakers. Gary gets up at the end and he just says, um, I'm not here to sell you shit. And the whole room just like outroars into absolute excitement. And, uh, you know, the guy, the people seem like a rock star, man. He's, he's pretty exciting. Um, but that stuck with me how he won the room over in like a matter of seconds. Yeah. It went from people falling asleep and feeling sick of being tried to be sold to after eight hours of people trying to sell things within 10 seconds, Gary had the whole room in the palm of his hand that rattled me. Cause I was like, how is this person able to understand and read the room and give them what they want when all these other professionals <laughs> that are multimillionaires can't even put a pitch together. Um, and I was, I was like, I understood, I understood exactly what he did because I studied NLP and I understood speaking and all that stuff. Um, but what he, what stuck with me was when he said, just fucking start. So I went home on the drive home, man. I don't know what came over me. I just was like, okay, I'm going to start an agency. Um, started messaging, phoning, texting, emailing everyone I knew. And, you know, within, within days I had a pile of clients and I was able to start monetizing my business. Um, I thought I'd start teaching what I was doing. And that's when I started making content on Instagram, teaching people like this is a logo and how to use one. And I was just teaching what I was doing as I started doing it for myself. I've done a lot of work with Gary. I've spent a bunch of time with him. So I know what you mean, but explain to me, like you said, you've, you've studied what he done. You've studied at NLP. So you've got a good understanding and obviously linking back to the experiences you have, it seems like you have that lens where you can sense what people are thinking and feeling in different situations. Yeah. Is that on a micro level one-to-one and a macro level? What, what, what is that thing? Cause you said you understand. I don't think a lot of people do. What is that thing when someone can understand like what, what, what do you feel like Gary had and, and people can have that makes them so tapped into to, to culture, to what people are thinking and feeling? I think he's got his finger on the pulse. Like he really does. Um, from what I understand from Gary is he posts his own content. He creates his own content. Whereas a lot of CEOs I meet, cause they work with us, they hire me. They say, can you make my content for me? Um, whereas Gary's like, I'm, I'm going to do this myself. Even if I'm crap at it, he's not terrified to just jump in and figure it out. Like he jumped into clubhouse early. He jumped into TikTok very early. Um, you know, and he just starts screwing around. Like he's not afraid to make mistakes and just have fun with it. I think he genuinely loves it. And I think he genuinely loves people. Whereas, you know, I'm not going to name names, but other people, they come across as like, they have an agenda. 
And I 100%. think when Gary's on stage, he didn't have a keynote presentation behind him. He just had one eight hundred Gary. So I was like, it's there if you want it, you know? Yeah. Um, but he didn't have a keynote. He's just off the cuff. He's kind of comedic. He's entertaining. He's funny. He's, he's audacious. Um, but like, how does he read a room? I think he really gets why people are there and what their problems really are. Um, but if you look at musicians, like you've seen a good musician and a bad musician, like a good musician really knows the dynamic of the room and how to use the room. Same with comedians. Mm. A good comedian knows how to get a feel for the room. Uh, and you know, you can be a good musician, but maybe not have that crowd aspect to you, or you don't know how to entertain an audience. So I just think he has this knack for how to use a room, uh, which I don't see a lot of in the business space. Like one of the questions I wanted to ask you about, and you kind of started already explaining in your story is your understanding of human psychology. Yeah. Obviously that's gone back to you as a kid. And like, as you said, being very observant and, 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 and sensitive to people, their moods, their behaviors around you. Yeah. Obviously people can't go back to their childhood and expose themselves to all those sorts of things to develop that. What, what can people do to increase their understanding of human psychology? Because if you want to be successful in business or anything to do with marketing, branding that space, there needs to be an understanding of that. Is there anything that people can do to help educate themselves in human psychology or become more aware of those sorts of things? It's a really good point. Like a lot of people read the big books, right? Like, um, you know, biographies and like how to tactic business books. But I always encourage people like go to the basics, like read about fundamental human psychology, read about, um, you know, uh, read about like marketplace demographics, like read about the elementary stuff. That's not as sexy, but what starts to happen is when you start reading into books about psychology, books about negotiation, books about um, human persuasion techniques, leadership, like when you start really diving into like human psychology, patterns start to emerge and you start seeing them in real life. So there's a book I read called NLP Demystified, which is a book that a lot of people don't know about. And it just talks about the history of NLP. And for those that don't know, NLP is uh, neuro-linguistic programming which if you're familiar with Tony Robbins or Jordan Belfort, they both are master practitioners in NLP. Um, so a lot of Tony Robbins methods, teachings, um, if you've watched, I'm not your guru on Netflix, just, you know, everyone has Netflix. If you watch that, he's using NLP. He's using um, unconscious persuasive language patterns um, and habit building um, frameworks in his workshops to get people out of their funk. Like, you know, when people are just in bad mindsets or they have bad internal dialogue. Um, so I think as a young kid, I like Tony Robbins, you know, to deal with the pain, he wanted to understand why his mother was doing what she was doing. I went on a similar journey and started reading all this material to be like, why was my mom like she, the way she was? Um, and how do I also mend myself? Cause I have trauma. Um, I wanted to be stronger, more affluent, less anxious, less stressed, and I think by working on myself, I started to learn how psychology helped me. And then when you can really truly help yourself and understand psychology for you, then it's just a matter of um, inverting it outwardly and going, hey, this could probably apply to the team I lead or the client that's struggling. Um, but yeah, I just find it interesting, man. I think, I think um, you know, not to claim that I'm an expert at psychology or anything, but I just read about it. I think it's interesting and it's a lot of little things that you can stack together in a sales call or a lot of little things that you could inject into your copywriting on an e-com site. So product descriptions, you can use a little bit of language in there to make it more exciting, more emotionally gripping, uh, more tangible for someone to buy something. Um, so yeah, like 
for me, I've just been able to kind of see the framework of human relationships and sales and marketing dynamics between people. And I think when you, when you start to see the patterns of human psychology in the marketplace and what makes people buy things, what makes people click on a photo, when you start to see this stuff over a long period of time, it, it starts to become unconsciously easy for me, but I think it wasn't always like this. I've spent the past decade reading about this stuff. And the thing is uh, with with that as well, same as you, I'm really fascinated with it. And I think I have a natural kind of understanding in of emotion and mood and and what people, how, how something will come across to people. Um, But the thing is about human psychology, obviously humans are so extremely nuanced, but if you zoom out a lot, we're actually pretty simple as in we're all motivated by very similar things. We all respond differently, but in similar ways to different, different sort of things that that we come across in our lives. So understanding of that is a really, is a really powerful tool for obviously business, which we're going to talk about, but your own personal growth, like you said, something that I've, I've recently gotten much more into than, than I used to be. And, and you said that phrase and it can sound so cheesy if you're not into, but it's like doing the work. Yeah. It's like, I've always been so passionate for like the last five, six, seven years about personal development, but it was always, how can I build myself up? But only recently I've realized and going back to my childhood and looking about looking at the things that I went through that were maybe hard or unfair or, or not everyone had to go through. And I'm the same as you. I genuinely have always seen it and believed it to be a positive thing because those experiences made me who I am today. And I'm really happy and proud of myself. So I don't look at it as a negative, but I've only just started looking back and reflecting on some of those things. And it's amazing how much they do shape you. I want to know not so much what, what it like, I don't need to know like what you thought about to get to, but what does doing the work look like? How do, how do people start understanding themselves better and what they experienced as a, as a child and then using that to help them accept and move on with their life? Yeah, I think like there's many methods to it. Um, I'll just, I guess, share what helped me. Um, so my so my NLP teacher, um, uh, Katie, she, she said, look, Dane, like um, first thing when you get out of bed in the morning, have a journal next to your bed and just write down whatever's in your head like anything. Um, and I was kind of skeptical, like, what do you, like, I'm not going to write stuff down in the morning. Like, <laughs> um, but it, it was weird. So I, the minute I woke up, like, like you still haven't even had, you know, you haven't fully come to like being awake and alert. Like the, the second your eyes open, grab the paper, grab the pen and just start writing. And it was quite intense what I was writing down. Um, and there's a, there's a window where you're still kind of unconscious when you're waking up, um, where a lot of stuff is just floating around in your head. So it's just, for me, the first step to simplify it is like, start to become aware of what your unconscious mind's talking about at all times. So for example, you know, when you, when you might, um, be in a social situation and you might feel to yourself, oh, I'm uncomfortable. Well, that's your unconscious mind communicating with you. Right. So those moments where you feel like, oh, this is too good to be true, or I'm uncomfortable, or I feel anxious right now. Like these are all unconscious software programs running in the back of your head, in the back of your system. You didn't engineer those pieces of software. Why are they there? And it, in NLP, it's usually parents and people that uh, raised you. They imprint these pieces of software in your head. And then you just think that's a part of my system. What NLP was able to teach me was no, someone planted that there. Cause when you're born, you're only born with two pieces of software in your head. Um, I'm afraid of loud noises and I'm afraid of heights. 
that's the only two pieces of software you really have as a negative component in your head. Other than that, you're like, I'm hungry, I'm in pain, <laughs> you know, like whatever. Um, so for me, when I started journaling this stuff, uh, my unconscious mind was just spewing out all of this negative stuff, like self-hatred, self-loathing, anxiety, depression, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then I was like, Whoa, I didn't realize this was going on in, in my unconscious mind. So just being aware of that is like the first step because when you can actually become comfortable, just analyzing yourself and just going, I'm not perfect. I'm just going to start analyzing my own language. What are my fears? What are my concerns? What are my doubts? Where am I self-sabotaging? If you start catching this stuff, you don't need to know how to fix it. You just need to know, okay, it's there. It exists. Um, let me just start capturing all of it. Mm. You can go to someone who can help you with this. Uh, but in my case, I just kept reading the literature and kept messing around with stuff. But eventually I went to a specialist and I said, look, I need to, I need you to help me through these things. And at least I could catalog to them what they were. Yeah. 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 Uh, we had, who do we have on? Oh, so we're talking about the benefits of therapy for anyone to, yeah. to move forward with your life, to heal. It's such a powerful tool. I'm really interested in it. I think I want to start soon because I want to, like you said, I've, I'm very introspective and I think a lot about who I am, what my purpose is, what my past was, why I act the way I act. Um, and it's really like, it's a, it's a, it's a rewarding experience to go through that, but I'm at the stage now where like, I've got a pretty good, decent understanding of, of those sorts of things, but I need to now go to someone that understands this on a broader level and have them help me point me in the right direction or ask me the right type of questions to fully gain an understanding on that. Now, from, from, from your, your childhood and your upbringing, I understand very clearly now how you got that lens of, you know, sensitivity to, to what's going on around you. And that's obviously served you in business, but where do you think you got this self-starter attitude, just go out and do things like you were, you were selling vacuums. You didn't have to go and do all this and put together this whole thing for this guy. This, every, every step you've made in your career, you've been very self-motivated to, to probably go above and beyond what everyone else around you is doing. Where, where does that come from? Yeah, that's a great question. I've, I've actually put a lot of thought into this. And like, as a kid, like back to um, the situation I was in, I never really had like toys or friends or uh, my, my parent, my, my mother and my stepfather never went anywhere. We never like, you know what I mean? Like I, I was kind of forced to entertain myself. Um, so I, I didn't really have anyone doing th anything for me. Like if I was hungry, I made my own food. If I wanted to go somewhere, I went there myself. Like no one initiated things for me. So I think from a young age, I just had to develop the muscles of like, oh, I, I'll just do it myself then. Um, whereas I think some people don't have that pressure. They don't have that. Um, they don't have that. They don't have boredom or they don't have pressure or they don't have people making decisions for them. I think, um, I think in my case, I just had to be creative. I had to be clever. Um, so I even remember at the age of like six, I, I would, uh, I would go knock on the neighbor's doors and say, um, can I do any housework and you can pay me? And then sweet old ladies would give me five, $10 and I would like clean their garden or like, you know, um, dust off, you know, this old lady had me dust off all of her porcelain dolls on her cabinet. Um, she gave me $10 for it. So I was just like finding things to do for money. I don't know why. Um, I used to wash cars when I was like eight um, for $2 a piece. And then I'd go spend that money on lollies. So I was like, I want lollies. Mom can't give me money for lollies. Um, I can go knock on neighbor's doors, wash their cars. They give me money. I can go get lollies. So I was like, if I wanted something, I had to figure it out myself. Right. Um, and then later on when I was in high school, I used to go to the supermarket 
Cause again, my mum couldn't give me money. I was young. I was in, I was like 13. Um, I hadn't had a job yet. And I was like, I, I want money for tuck shop. Um, so I could buy my lunch. Right. Cause I, I didn't like the food that my mom made me. So I thought it would be clever to get some money that I did have, um, went to Coles supermarket and I bought, you know, um, bulk cans of soft drink and bulk, um, packets of chips and soft drink and all that kind of stuff and, and chocolates because the school banned vending machines. So I was like, they banned vending machines. Everyone's complaining. Everyone wants chocolate, soft drinks and chips. I could bring that to school. So I had two backpacks, one full of ice and snacks and drinks. The other one full of my books. Um, the teacher couldn't, teachers couldn't do anything about it. Cause I just told them it was my lunch. <laughs> uh, and I'd walk around the canvas cause it was, um, I think there was 1400 students at one particular high school I was at at that time. I just walk around at lunchtime. People knew me and I would just start selling them soft drinks and chips and stuff like that. I was making so much money. I ended up paying people to do my homework for me. Um, yeah. So I, I found a way to kind of be a bit of an entrepreneur mm. when I was in high school. Cause I just couldn't be bothered doing my homework. And- That's the thing. Where do, you, <laughs> where, where do you stand on the entrepreneurs are born or bred debate? I don't know, man. Like I just think I wasn't born this way. I, I was kind of molded to have to think for myself at a very young age. Um, and you know, when like, this is pretty dark, but like my mother would be so drunk that she couldn't even walk. So I had to learn how to get home. If she was out and about and drunk, I had to like kind of hobble, carry her home. Um, I had to make food for her. Like I had, I was just kind of like thrown into responsibility at a very young age. So I think not everyone has that. And I just was deprived of that. So I had to just kind of mature very early. Did you become extremely self-sufficient at a much younger age than most people would? Yeah. By the age of like nine, I was just doing everything myself. Yeah. And- Becoming like that at such a young age, that becomes so ingrained in everything you do and how you are. As you got older and as you started like looking, you know, at yourself and your life and trying to reflect on who you are, was was that ever a challenge to realize, hey, it's okay now. I'm 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 safe. I don't have to be so self-sufficient. I can ask for help. I can, you know, go to other people for support. Was that an adjustment period for you to not completely isolate everyone and feel like you have to do everything yourself? Massively. Yeah. I think, um, I had a mentor when I was 17 who had a business and for whatever reason, um, wanted to, I guess, help me cause he could see I was in pain and, um, yeah, he would just spend time with me. He'd invite me over. I'd spend time with him and his family and babysit his kids and stuff. And, um, he was just teaching me about life. I, I think he could just, he had a rough upbringing and he could see that in me. So he wanted to kind of, um, help me and, and, um, yeah, I think, I don't know, to answer your question, um, I, it was weird to adapt. It was weird to ask for help because I felt like something was wrong. Like if I was asking for help or for support or someone to do something for me, maybe it was bruising my ego, maybe I had pride or um, it just made me feel uncomfortable. So it was actually unnatural for me to depend on others. Yeah, which causes problems um, throughout the later years after my teens where I didn't trust people. Um, it was difficult to make friends because I was constantly like asking what their agenda is or what their intention was. So almost like too far to the point where it was detrimental to my relationships. Um, I've course corrected that and things are a lot better now. Um, but yeah, it, it, it kind of, it definitely set me off. Like if you think about a pendulum, I was really far on one side and it was so hard for me to swing to the other side, but I slowly started creeping, I guess, to the middle. And 
now it's, I'm aware of it. I sometimes feel uncomfortable, but I'm able to kind of just ask for help and know that it's not a bad thing and kind of change my programming around that. You mentioned having a mentor. What sort of role did that play in helping you, you know, move forward with business and life? Yeah. So at the time um, I was 17, I was quite depressed uh, and it was like a youth group community, like church center. Um, and my friend invited me, I went along and one of the pastoral kind of characters, his name's Dave, uh, just took me under his wing and just could tell I needed some help. Um, so yeah, it, it, it kind of, it kind of, it kind of allowed me to, um, feel like what a father figure was like for the first time. And just these little things, even though he wasn't my father, I was like, Oh, this is what it might feel like to have a dad. You know what I mean? Cause I had a stepdad, but that was different. Um, but to have someone like care about me and not want anything from me, uh, like really kind of, it really kind of forced my brain to think about reality very differently. I don't know if this makes sense. Yeah. 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 yeah, It does. It does. Yeah. That's kind of linked to what we were just talking about before that, like protection, ultra protection thing. Now you realize, wait a minute, there are people out there that don't always have negative intentions that aren't always using me for, for, for other things. And like you said, with anything, it's a process, that growth journey you go on as someone now who's, who's been, I know you're still young, you're still early on in your entrepreneurial journey, mm-hmm. but someone who's been incredibly successful, yep. do you still ever work with mentors? Is there anyone that above you that you talk to, that you go to advice or direction to help you, you know, take the next step with your career? Yeah. So I talked to Chris Doe, um, you know, so he run, he ran an agency called Blinds in LA. I think he had, you know, uh, like 36 staff or something at one point. He worked with Coldplay and Halo, like he did some big stuff. So yeah. I worked with him. Um, it's been really good having him because he really challenges me. Like he, he kind of looks at me and he's like, okay, like you're still naive. You're still figuring things out. So it's really cool to have someone that's so far ahead of me on the game um, that they can really kind of help me adapt myself quickly. Um, And then I also have another mentor who's like a great leader character in business who focuses on culture development, leadership development, um, company systems and infrastructure development. And yeah, between these two mentors, I've been able to really kind of start building my systems, um, being a better leader for my team. Um, so yeah, I think mentors play a huge role, man. It's almost like having a PT, like you can build a business yourself and be healthy and all the rest of it. But if you're looking for that edge or you're looking for that extra layer of performance, I think having someone just to keep you accountable and to challenge you and to have the kahunas to kind of call you out on stuff because your friends and your team and your family won't um, in most cases, but having a mentor you pay for, they're, they're kind of willing to, I guess, ruffle your feathers and really push you a, push your buttons and try to yeah, get you to, because yeah. one, once you've achieved like a, a level of success, it's really easy to, to get comfortable and feel like, Oh, not that you know everything, you know, you don't, but you just need people that see the world differently that have different experiences. I've worked to the stage. Now I do a lot of mentoring as I, as I was saying off air, uh, in, in the e-com space, helping people build their businesses and grow them and, and trying to you know, teach them what I've learned. And I've, because I've been doing so much of that over the last couple of years, I've realized I haven't really been working with a mentor properly for, for a while. Like I, I had Gary V for a while, I spent a lot of time with him around the world and that was really cool. But then the COVID shit happened. I was meant to go to New York. You don't, people that big, you don't like pestering and stealing times. I'm like, I just realized over the last month or two, I'm, I'm, I'm in the position now that I need to seek a new mentor as well. Particularly for business, I've got a really great mentor um, from from Kung Fu's head of my school. Like he teaches me 
obviously the, the, the martial arts, but spiritually and, and everything like that, I've got a mental, but in terms of business now re like thinking about where I am in life and this is what I encourage everyone to do, figure out where you are in life and okay, what are your goals now for the next five years? Like where, where do you want to take your life? And find mentors and find people that have done things that are in the spaces that you want to go for for the next five years of your life. So it wouldn't make sense if I had the same mentors um, that I had that I wanted 10 years ago when I wanted to be a lawyer. But now changing that, it's not just e-com, it's e-com, but like media and all this awesome stuff I want to do. Finding people can help you so much. Now, I want to ask about the journey post Gary V. Was that when you started working with the Mario the Mario yeah, man. What, so, how did that happen? Yeah. From, I'm doing this agency. I'm going to make it happen. What, what happens next? Yeah. So I was working at Telstra. I was selling phones and, and I just, um, you know, I, I started to, you know, like I told you, I was texting, emailing people and saying, Hey, like, I want to, um, uh, I would love to like do work for you. Right. And I started making the content because I was producing the content. I just enjoyed it so much. I was doing it every day. And this guy, Mario, who is a mortgage broker in New York, really wild character, big bushy beard, <laughs> uh, wears bright pink t-shirts and like wristbands. And he's just this burly, like hard-headed, rebellious kind of character. And um, he just DMs me and he's like, yo, what's up, Dane? Uh, we need to talk. And I was like, cool. And this is when I was very early days on Instagram, but I only posted maybe like 25 posts and maybe had 1500 or 2000 followers. Um, and I was doing okay. I was growing in the community and getting inquiries and stuff. And this dude just came out of nowhere. And, um, while still working my job, he, get, he calls me 11 o'clock at night and he's like, Dane, I just, I love your shit. Um, like I want to do what you're doing. Can you make my content for me? And I said, well, sure, man, we can organize a deal. We can come to something. And he's like, no, I want you to do it for free. And I, and I was perplexed. I was like, well, okay. Uh, and he goes, look, I, I got something to offer you. Like, what do you need, Dane? And I said, dude, I need clients. I need, I need people to pay me revenue so I can quit my job. And he goes, well, how much money do you need per month? I said, dude, if I could get $10,000 a month, I'd quit my job and I can make as much content as you need me to make you. And he goes, I'll call you back tomorrow. Hangs up. Uh, the next day I, I kind of was like, you know, when people say that stuff, you're like, sure, you know, like, cool. That was weird. Um, he calls me back and he goes, Dane, I've got six clients for you. I wrote the contract, the six month agreements on retainers. You got your $10,000 a month. Here you go. I've just emailed them over to you. They've signed it. They're ready to go. You just need to start making their content too. And I was like, Holy smokes. Like, I was in shock because I went from being, you know, $180,000 in debt, working a job, barely making ends meet, even calculating my odometer every day on my trips to and from work. Like, can I get to the gym today? And it was tough, man. I couldn't even afford lunch. Like if I forgot my lunch, I didn't eat, you know? Um, and that's because of my own stupidity when I was younger, just spending money I didn't have. But um, anyways, uh, I had so much anxiety to quit my job, but I had the money coming in. So I set up a PayPal account. I quit my job. I was like, let's just go for it. My fiance was like, go for it. Like, let's make this happen. Like, obviously this is all happening for a reason. I just start getting on these calls with these people, start making their content. Um, the revenue starts coming in. Um, I set up a PayPal account cause it's all international and then PayPal wouldn't pay me for 90 days. So I had all this money piling into my PayPal and I had to go get more clients locally so I could get paid 
while I was waiting for my cash. Why wouldn't they pay you? Is it like they they don't trust it? Like all these all these out of nowhere as well. Out of nowhere, it just looks suspicious. So they have to go through this hardcore security process. So I was stressed to all ends, but that forced me to get other clients in Australia whilst I was waiting to get PayPal to distribute the funds from from the online account. So I was like full flight into business mode, and and um, after like literally after like six weeks of that, I was making over $30,000 a month in revenue. Um, and then six months later, it was like above $70,000 a month by myself on my own, doing all of the content creation myself. And I, I was working these really ridiculously long hours and I was terrified to hire someone because I was bringing them into a really unpredictable, chaotic, unorganized environment. And I, I'm not a perfectionist, but I was like, I need structure before I hire people. So anyways, this guy, Carlos reached out to me and said, I want to work for you again, serendipity just happened to kind of work out, brought him on board, started hiring people like crazy. And we were a content creation agency for like the first probably six months. And what sort of content? Uh, so we would do carousel content. So graphic content, we weren't doing anything video. Um, video wasn't really as big on Instagram. We really specialized on Instagram content um, in the form of what we call carousels, which is like these little slide swipe posts that you can make. Similar to what you're still doing today, right? Yeah. And this was a huge trend in like end of 2019, beginning of 2020. Like this was a new feature that Instagram had. Everyone was able to educate with graphics um, and I was making really good money doing it. It was a big trend at that time. Um, But after six months, I realized that the clients I had their struggle wasn't their content. They had bad business strategy. They had poor sales tactics. They had, they had no idea how to communicate what they did or why they did it. So then we started to slowly creep into business strategy, brand strategy, message systems. We started to go in designing logos and color psychology. Um, and over the years since then, we just kind of organically lent more and more into becoming a branding agency to the point now where we don't even do content. We just build fully fledged brands, build their logos, their names, their colors, their psychology, the website. We just set them up with all the infrastructure. Um, but this all kind of happened organically, man. Like I didn't even, I knew I wanted an agency, but I didn't know what it was going to become at the beginning. And how did it so quickly get from just you to over 20, over 20 full-time staff in the space of like three years? Well, my Instagram took off. Um, did you start that as you started the agency a little bit before? So before I, so, so it kind of happened synonymously. So when I started, you know, how I started texting, calling and phoning people, um, I was just getting clients through my network. And whilst I was doing that, I was like, I may as well educate what I'm doing on my socials. Um, and I just started posting these carousels on Instagram, just like how to tips on like how to grow Instagram, how to, you know, just how to do stuff as a brand. Um, but over the, over the first year, I think my page grew to 40,000 followers. Um, which, you know, I, I, I would post every like 41,000, 42,000, 43. So people could see the timeline of how fast my page was growing. And this was creating a line at the door of people going, how do I do that for my brands? So the demand was there and I just didn't have the team to support the amount of inquiries that we had. So I would constantly have too much work coming in and I would hire people and then more people would show up because my page just kept growing. So I was hiring as my page was scaling and as the demand was increasing um, and the paychecks were getting bigger because we were getting bigger clients, bigger referrals, bigger projects. Um, Clients would just say, Hey, do you guys do websites? And at that time we didn't, we just said, sure, we'll figure out how. Uh, Then we built a whole department and hired people to, to do that. 
Yeah. It's crazy, man. Um, people, no matter the industry, people doubt the power of social media, but yeah. it just goes to show how much, like what percentage of your clients come either from your organic content or from referrals from, from other, from other people you've worked with. Um, it used to be like 99.99% um, Instagram um, just because people will follow me for three to six months. They'll build some kind of affinity toward me and they'll go, well, if I ever get the money, this is the guy that's going to yeah, do the, yeah. the branding for me. Cause I position myself as the figure of authority at that. Um, but now, now that we've had the agency rival kind of well-established coming onto two years as like an, a, a legitimate like agency with an office and staff and team and stuff like that. Um, we're now maybe 25% of the time getting referrals. So a very happy client then shares the word and then their friends come knocking on the door and say, Hey, you did this for that brands. Can you help me with and, my brand? And now that you've grown so much, are you only working with like the biggest brands, like your, your, your culture Kings and, and things like that? Or do you still work with smaller businesses? Most well? of the time it's smaller businesses. Um, we, we just, we're in a pocket now where it's like maybe five to 10, maybe 20 employees is kind of where the majority of our clientele kind of sit. Um, but we have a lot of startup brands. We have a lot of um, capital investment um, brands where a, a company's creating a product. Someone's pitched it to them. They love it. They want to invest in the branding. Um, at the moment, we're getting a lot of personal branding, like people that are setting up their own business as a personal trainer or as a real estate um, trainer, like people that are kind of going out and creating podcasts, they're making revenue. They want to take their stuff to another level. Um, it's usually when people are in a hardcore growth phase mm -hmm. and they're trying to create structure, clarity and systems that they reach out. Um, but yeah, we're talking about like just, you know, your average business owner, like is the majority meat and potatoes of what we do. Um, every now and then we get a culture Kings or a glue store or a, um, like a big blue chip company. Who's been like, um, like, well, has there been any people you've worked with either with the agency or you've spoken with on stage or any brands? Like, what, what are the pinch me moments or the pinch me brands along the way that have been like, fuck, that's pretty cool. Definitely. Like when I got a DM from Simon Beard from Coach Kings, I was like, this is not real. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, here's my email. I kind of like almost blew the dude off. And then he emailed me. I was like, this is legit. Like, this yeah. is actually the guy. Um, he said, I love your stuff. I want to talk. And I'm like, dude, I've, I've definitely a pinch myself moment. Cause ever since I was a kid, I was like, man, I love the culture Kings brand. I thought their store was cool. I thought the fact they got Justin Bieber and Eminem and like Drake and, and um, Snoop Dogg out into their store. I was like, man, this, these guys were just clever. I just idolized the brand and um, I thought it was really cool. So it was just so bizarre. Like a brand I grew up buying from and loving was DMing me uh, asking if they could work with me on branding. Um, so when we got on a call, it was pretty nerve wracking cause you know, it's kind of a starstruck moment, right? You're like, oh, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I really <laughs> want to work with these guys. And I just made the decision. I was just going to be me. I was just going to be really authentic. I'm like, dude, I'm a huge fan of your brand. I love what you guys do. Um, you know, from a strategist perspective, I think there's some things we could work on. And I think he kind of liked it. I had the audacity to be like, we need to change some stuff here. And he's very much into personal development. He goes to Tony Robbins events. Um, he, he gets one-on-one -on -one coaching from Jordan Belfort. Like he's very proficient and very, um, very incredibly adept at building businesses. And I think that he realized the trajectory my brand was on my personal brand. And he was like, I like how just, uh, different you are. Cause he was consulting with big firms, like big prestigious award-winning firms. And then here's me, 
uh, with my little team of Mavericks just making noise. And he said, look, I built Culture Kings off disruption. I built this brand off being um, a contrarian and doing things that had never been done before and being aggressive and being assertive and being kind of punk rock. And he's like, you're kind of like that. That seems to be how you approach social media. I want to know what your take is on on the branding. So anyways, we did a workshop. We identified a ton of things that we could help support the brand with. And we did a, a complete brand overhaul. Total pinch me moment. Um, we've been in talks with Coca-Cola, Dragon Sunglasses, Casio G-Shock, um, Glue Store, um, and, and some other big brands. And it's just so strange, dude, because like, you know, three years ago, I was just posting on Instagram and now we're talking with these companies about the most cutting edge strategies on social media and Instagram and how they can tap into that energy and how they can utilize it for their campaigns and stuff. It's just a bit weird. And how does it feel when you, when you take a moment and reflect of all that stuff you just said, but where you came from? Yeah, it's weird, dude. It's really strange. And I think it's proof that you can really design the future you want. Um, and I don't, not to get woo here, but I like, I, I believe in energy, right? Sure. And Albert Einstein has this quote and it's everything is energy. Um, that's all there is to it. Match the frequency of that, which you want and you cannot help, but have it. This is not, um, this is not philosophy. I think he says, this is not philosophy, but physics. This is not philosophy. This is physics. And every time I read that quote, it hits me different. Same fuck. It gets me, man. It gives me goosebumps. But for me, I think when I started my journey, when I was 17, I had Dave as my mentor, my spiritual mentor, kind of taking me through like what life's all about, what love really is. He really took me through this father son kind of dynamic where I was able to heal that part of myself. And, you know, kind of, he kind of helped me walk into manhood, put my childish things away and kind of look at the world a bit differently. And he was quite rebellious and, um, had gusto about him. So I, I took some traits from him. Um, then I walked into that creative job when I was 19 and that taught me a lot about you know, merchandising and e-commerce and social media. I just kind of picked up these nuggets as I went. Um, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, um, I think, I think all of this collectively um, helped me. Um, yeah. I, I remember your question. So. Um, but like you said, I remember it too. It goes to show it doesn't matter where you came from. Yeah. Doesn't matter, man. Like it's, you can create your life to be whatever oh, it energy, wants to be. Energy, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think when I started becoming really conscious about how I was thinking about life, like what lens am I looking at life with? Um, I, I instead of saying the world's out to get me, I started saying the whole world's out to help me. I know this sounds silly, but like little things like that. Instead of saying, um, such I'm such a big switch. Just that little little tiny switch. program. It's easy, but yeah. it changes so much for you. Yeah. It just changed everything, right? Like Tony Robbins has this thing where like two people could be in a car accident and then they get out. One person could say, Oh my God, my life almost ended. The other person could get out and say, Oh my God, I get to live. It's just perspective. So like I started and it wasn't easy. It took years of like catching myself using negative internal language and going, like, okay, everyone's out to get me isn't really great internal language, right? So I was like, let me just play with that copyright and just put that back in my head. So anytime I would catch myself thinking the negative thing, I would just read the mantra out back to myself. Like everyone's out to help me. Everyone's out to help me. And then when you actually get a little delusional and you start looking at the world, like everyone's out to help me, weird stuff starts to happen. People start wanting to help you. Mario comes out of nowhere and throws money at me. Like I can't explain it, man. When you start to really get into an energetic state, I don't know if things start to shift. Yeah. And, and, 
I say this as well when we're having these conversations. I should stop fucking saying it. Like, oh, this is we. I know this is weird. First of all, the people listening to this podcast, they they get it. Most of them at least they are going to understand what we're talking about. But what's so funny, we feel like, particularly as guys, we feel like we have to say, oh, this is, oh, I know this is a bit weird or whatever, but it's like I've now, this is episode, was this 50, Joe? This is episode 50 of the podcast. Cool. Um, and most people, if not all of them that I'm speaking to are extremely successful in their own field, right? And I've, I'm yet to have a conversation with someone that's achieved success in business or life, whatever their chosen field is, that isn't extremely connected to their own spiritual and personal growth journey. Wow. Yeah. It just, it doesn't happen. I'm yet to see it. I'm sure there's some robots out there that don't, but this journey is like that you go on trying to understand yourself, improve your, your like aspects of your life remove these limiting beliefs. All these things are part of the process. If you want to be successful, like a lot of people just think money's going to, to solve all my problems. How can I get money? And money does help. I'm not going to lie. People say, does money make you happy? I think money can do a lot of things for you and, and it can take away a lot of things. It doesn't do everything. But it's like, if you just start thinking about money, 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 and you don't do any of the work on yourself, the way you see the world, your lens, that inner monologue inside your head, I'd, I really, I, I haven't seen it done yet. Like people that journey you go on is, is so crucial and so important um, to, to everything. So it's just awesome for me to hear your own story and how you did that and how everything's been linked. Now, I actually, I want to jump back for a second to, to when you're at the gyms, because I want to ask something, not because there's a lot of people that run gyms listening to the podcast, but I just like to hear what were you doing differently? Like to go into multiple different, a couple of different gyms and completely like, blow up all their sales records. You're clearly doing things that the other people weren't doing, thinking outside the box. What were some of those things that you started doing and how can people think outside the box to, you know, make an impact? And if, if, if they want results that they never had, you clearly need to do things you've never done. Right. Yeah. 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 So, um, I was chatting to my friend last night about this actually. And like one chapter of my story I left out was when I was 20, when I was 23, I did MLM and you know, people call it a pyramid scheme or whatever. Um, you know, it's, it's technically under the Australian law of like direct sales and it is legal. There, there is licenses, blah, blah, blah. Right. But, um, so I joined an MLM business and this is before I worked in the gyms. Um, this is before, so after I worked at the t-shirt shop, the reason I left the t-shirt shop was to do ACN for MLM. Mm -hmm. And, um, essentially what it was is you, someone pays you $500 to join your organization then they can sell your products and services. Then they get a percentage and you get a percentage of what their percentage is. And they would sell mobile phones. They would sell phone plans. So we were partnered with Vodafone and Optus and Telstra on like all of the infrastructure stuff. So we're selling technology. And in the period of two years, I, I recruited over 2,600 people into my organization myself. 2,600? 2,600 people I recruited in two years myself. Um, so you would have done all right. I did all right. I did really well. And this is why I racked up the debt. Cause I was, I was like trying to live this flashy, look at me, go look at my car and my suits lifestyle. Um, expecting that money would never run out, but stupid young me being 20, 24 at the time, um, traveling all over Australia, speaking on stages. So I learned how to speak on stages. I learned how to run events. I learned how to do phone conferencing, uh, all when I was 24. So this is going back. Uh, I'm 30, I'm turning 33 this year in August. Um, so MLM, it was this weird cultural environment where you're in a room with like a couple hundred people every week and they all want to be rich and they all want to be wealthy and like none of them are except maybe two. And, <laughs> and, but it was just like this 
place, this environment where you could just be around people that felt like they wanted more in life, which is different to everyday life. The point is, how was I able to do what I did with the gyms? So I, I did what I call tap rooting and I built a power base. So this is kind of crazy and kind of scary, but I went onto Facebook. You can download your CCV file on Facebook and export it into an Excel spreadsheet and it will pump out a list of all your contacts and their contact details. So such and such as name, their phone, and their email. It's kind of spooky. So um, I did that on an Excel spreadsheet. I printed it at Officeworks and this thing was like three or 400 pages and I got it binded. Um, and the reason I did this was because my mentor in ACN who ran the company, um, who, you know, this guy works with billionaires, very successful guy. He said to me, Dane, like, how many people do you know when I joined the business? And I said, I know, I don't know, like 50 people. He said, bullshit. And he's like, how many people do you really know? And I was like, I don't have many friends do like, I don't, he goes, well, how many, how many people do you think you've ever met in your life? And I was like, I don't know, like a couple hundred. And he's like, by the age of 19, the average 19 year old knows 2,500 people. And then I was like, that's kind of true. I went on my Facebook. I was like, I know 2,700 people apparently. Um, anyways, I printed out the Excel spreadsheet. I sat down with him kind of like what your binder has there, right? Like everything's highlighted. Um, he's like, go through that list and just highlight anyone you think you, that would like to make money. So I did that. I went through the book and I highlighted like hundreds of names. And then he sat there with me. We started making phone calls and calling all these people and just saying like short scripts, like, Hey, do you want to make some money? Let's meet for coffee. Uh, and one out of 10 would join. Then two out of 10 would join. And I got better than three out of 10 would join. And eventually it got to the point where I was like five, six out of 10 were joining my business. Um, what taprooting was, was when they joined my business, we did the same thing with them. Like you're a doorway into your contacts. So when I was at the gym, nobody thinks like that when they're doing gym sales. So I was taprooting leads for more leads the same way I did an MLM. I just took that same power base which is the book. I'm like, how many people do you know? Let's create a list. So I sat with my team at World Gym. I was like, let's write a list of everyone we know in the whole town. Wrote everyone's names down. We just started calling them. Would you like a free milkshake and a free tour around the gym and a free membership for a month? And tons of people were like, yeah. So we just use MLM tactics in the gym space. Um, and then when those people would sign up, we would give them a free towel, a free shake and all this other stuff. And just say, look, I'll give you a free bag, a free shake, a free towel, a free, you know, supplement protein, whatever you want. I'll just give it to you for free. Just give me 25 names on a list. They'd write down 25 of their friends and families. We just start calling them and just having good scripts, being friendly, being funny, being approachable. You know, we got told to get bent a lot, but at the same time, we had a lot of people say, I need this. I need to come down to the gym. And we started selling hundreds of memberships a month doing that. On top of that, we started doing really interesting, funny social media content on, on Instagram with like, um, me dancing in a gorilla suit, throwing protein around the gym, um, just doing weird stuff. I dress up like Crocodile Dundee and I pretend to tie up the biggest guy in the gym as if he was a crocodile, <laughs> like just funny stuff. It got on the news. It was in the paper. The town was talking about it. So we just created a buzz. And I think like we just were very aggressive with our marketing approach rather than going, what's our ad spend? Let's just wait for the ads to bring leads in. I was like, how do we proactively go out and create a power base? How do we build our own network and then tap into that network, tap rooting to get um, people to want to just know about us? They might say no, but do they know about you? Do they know what your offer is? Um, that's the same principle I used to building my agency. The first week I started building my agency, I just went through that list again. I decided, do you need a logo? Do you need a business card? Like, what do you need? So I just highlighted all the business owners on my list and started calling them out of the blue. 
hadn't talked to them in maybe six, seven years, doesn't matter. Like, hey, what's up? It's Dane. I haven't seen you in years, man. How you doing? Saw a photo of your kids on social media. Congratulations on the wedding. Um, look, this is out of the blue. This is weird. Can you do me a favor? Sure, man. I started an agency. I'm selling logos, business cards, posters. Like, do you need anything? Yeah, I hate my logo. How much for a new logo? A couple hundred bucks. Cool, let's do it. So it's just no one really does that old school like phone call, door knocking. It's just pure hustle. It's pure hustle. It's like, I don't have the reach on social media, so I'm going to go use these other tactics. And I think in my case, I was using social media tactics and power-based taprooting tactics with my clients. And I was kind of hitting him from both angles. And that's why we were able to have such explosive growth with Rival was because we were being extremely clever with our networking capabilities, scripts, and skills, but then also being extremely clever on social media. And then there's just a two-edged sword. We're just hitting it on both sides. Look, I love that, but I'm telling you, most people, and that's why you were successful, won't go and pick up the phone and start cold calling. Terrified. Terrifying. Yeah. We're, we're, what were you like when you first started? Did you hate it? Were you comfortable? Hated it. How do you get comfortable with that? Because I've done cold calling for a while. Yeah. Probably like a year, a year and a half. Yeah. Fucking yeah. hated it. You have you to play games. So like the way I got around it was um, my mentor was really funny about it. He told me a story about how um, in Johannesburg um, he introduced um, pantyhose like back in the, like the late seventies. <laughs> pantyhose weren't a thing in Johannesburg apparently. And um, he went to Europe and he bought like a truckload of pantyhose, took him to Johannesburg and just started knocking on office um, offices and just saying, Hey ladies, do you want pantyhose? And they're like, what are pantyhose? And he just started handing them out. Um, but he, he told me, he's like, Dana, I used to do 280 phone calls a day. He's like, I would just call businesses, ask him if they want a pantyhose. And he's like this grown ass masculine man. He ended up getting raided by, um, uh, the governing bodies for, um, fraud. Cause they thought he was selling drugs. They're like, there's no way this dude's making $12 million a year selling pantyhose. <laughs> um, but the point is he told me like, you have to look for the no. So when he was calling people, he was looking for the no. So he took the pressure off himself. He's like, I'm not looking for a yes. I'm just canvassing how many people want to say no. Um, and he's like, you just got to have fun. Like you have to have fun. You just have to remember that they're going to forget about it two minutes after the phone call. You're not ruining their day. You're not predatory. You're just like, Hey, what's up? Do you want pantyhose? Hey, what's up? Do you want a logo? No. Hey, no problem. Like if anyone, you know, does want one, would you know anyone? And sometimes people are like, yeah, my sister needs one. Here's her number. Mm. So it's uncomfortable. It's, but it's like going, going to the gym and doing your first workout session is uncomfortable. It's painful. It just gets to the point where it doesn't bother you anymore. Um, and I think as long as you believe that you have something really good to offer, like you genuinely are like, I've got a really good offer. I mean really well. I have a really pure hearted intention. I just need to go talk to people. If they don't want to work with me, that's fine there will be some out there that will. So if you go by a rule of one out of 10, if you have a good script, like just a good, you don't have to be great. You don't have to be amazing. Just a good script. Like this is the script I used to use. So I'd, I'd phone you and I'd say, Hey, what's up, man? Um, can you do me a huge favor? Sure. Yep. Um, actually let me rewind. So yeah, before yeah. we get to that, so I'd ring you up and I'd say, Hey man, what's going on? It's been so long. I know this calls out of the blue. I haven't seen you since high school. How you been? Yeah, yeah, really good, really good. Cool. What are you doing these days? Like we'd have a quick conversation, kind of do what we call priming. Um, and genuinely, I would say, look, man, I'd love to catch up for coffee. Um, but before we get to that, like, could you do me a huge favor? You say, yes. I'd say, look, um, like, are you looking for other ways to generate revenue for you and your family? If not, it's cool, but are you open-minded? They would say, 
I'm open-minded, like kind of skeptically. I'd say, look, no pressure. I just want to buy you a coffee. I genuinely just want to catch up anyway. Um, show you something I'm doing. And if you're interested, great. And if not, Hey man, it'd be good to reconnect. And then maybe like five times out of 10, people will be like, yeah, cool. And then one out of 10 that I would sit with would go, I'm in. And then the other nine would just kind of watch from a distance. And then every now and then they might say, Oh, I've been watching you from a distance on Instagram. I'm interested in what you're doing. So the point is if you look for the nose and the rejection and just know that that's a part of the game, it's, I don't know. It took the pressure off for me. That fear of rejection though, even though it means nothing, like you're never going to, they can't see your face. If they hang up, like they'll go along with their life. You'll go along with our lives, whoever's making the phone calls. But why is it such a, why is it such a core thing that humans don't want to put themselves in that uncomfortable situation, that feeling? Yeah. The, so you, do you know Cohen Ray? Yeah. He touches yeah. on this. So he talks about one of his, um, one of his segments in his courses, he says that um, human beings are pack animals. And what rejection means biologically is you're going to be kicked out of the tribe and you're going to have to survive on your own. And that meant death. So biologically rejection is like right up there with fear of death. Um, and it's petrifying for people. Cause um, like, think about it. We live in the hunter gatherer ages, your village rejects you. You're, you're as good as dead. Winter's coming like good luck surviving on your own. So I think, he kind of talked about it scientifically. I might've got my facts wrong there, but he's like, we're, we're herd creatures. And if the herd rejects us, that's bad. Um, and it's right up there with the feeling of death. And he talks about the only way to really get around that is by inoculation and the military use inoculation. So if you think about a Marine, you know, they're petrified for the first like weeks of their training, but eventually they're like, this is just another day. So yeah, I was uncomfortable for like the first eight weeks of doing this, but I think MLM, I did so many phone calls and it just became like not even scary. It just became, Oh, it's just a phone call. And then people say yes or no. Um, I think to get through that fear of rejection, you just have to inoculate yourself. Like you can't get over the fear of rejection of getting on stage and being crap in front of an audience until you just get up in front of enough audiences and do enough content. Like you think about a comedian, you can't become a great comedian unless you go on stage and bomb a couple hundred times. It's, it's, you just have to inoculate yourself and then eventually it's human nature to be adaptive and just the fear kind of goes away and it doesn't become a thing of rejection so anymore. The, so there's like two parts to it. There's that, you got to face the fears head on. You actually got to try these things because you're not going to get over something that makes you scared or uncomfortable without actually trying. But I think as well, what you could use on this is like, in a way, when we're talking about the rejection piece, it's so much further like down the line from even our childhood. And you know how we like got to rewire these subconscious things that happen in our childhood, this ultra fear of rejection to the extent of any little bit of rejection we blow up and want to avoid. That's, that's hundreds of thousands of years ago, or tens of thousands of years ago. It's also understanding that. And then being able to like, once you gain an understanding of something, it's such a powerful step in being able to overcome it. Yeah. So you can understand that it's fine. Like, nothing's going to change. No one's going to think differently of you. And then pair that with like the mentality of looking for the no, or like a lot of people that I hear really successful that are in sales. It's not even about like, Oh, I'm going to do calls until I get three yeses today. I'm just going to do 50 phone calls. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to do 50 phone calls, whatever happens from that. And that takes the pressure off it. And it seems from all the people that I've talked to that have had success in these sorts of uh, industries that actually breeds more success because you're not over analyzing, you're not putting so much pressure on the conversation, yeah. you're able to show up and just have a conversation rather than 
oh, I really need you to get you to do this thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, um, so Simon Beard who runs Culture Kings has this really cool method. I think it's Jordan Belfort's teaching. I don't know where he got this from, but he shared it with me and I love it. And he's like, we approach everything with high warmth and high confidence. So when he's training staff at Culture Kings, um, uh, he's like approach clients with high warmth, be very warm, like just genuinely caring and interested in who that person is match their energy. If they're timid and quiet, be like timid and quiet. If they're loud and robust, be loud and robust. If they're clever and funny, be clever and funny, like match their energy, be confident about it. Um, and then be, uh, and then be really warm. So when I was making these phone calls, I was naturally doing that. I was like, just be warm and friendly and be genuine. Like just don't think about that person as a dollar sign. They're a human being. You have something cool. That's interesting. And you're just like, Hey, do you want to trade? Do you want to trade some money and time for this thing that we're doing? I'll train you the thing. It's a trade. It's not, you're not getting something from them. You're like, Hey, like, do you want to swap baseball cards? You want to swap Pokemon cards? Like it's just this exchange and you're just trying to peek people to see if they're interested. But if you approach that with a warm, welcoming heart and you're genuine, but confident about it, it, it doesn't come natural. Um, but over time, like through inoculation, it can feel natural. But I think it's so important that it, people approach it with a good heart, like a pure heart, within the intention to help because people can pick up even in the tone of your voice over a phone, um, how you feel. So when I worked at UE insurance, um, I was a phone salesman at UE insurance, um, uh, after I did the MLM thing. And one of the things that they would train us is when you're on a phone, stand up and smile. And we were like, that's stupid. But then you stand up and smile, you look at your stats and they're better than the 10 previous calls. Mm. You're like, what, what's happening here? Well, body posture, facial expression, everything feeds into your tone in the voice. Um, and people are trained to pick up on that phonetically. And if they can tell you being genuine, you're in a good place. You know, people that have good wit will actually pick up on that and go, Oh, I'm not threatened. I got nothing to be skeptical of. So even the tone of your voice can calm someone down and make them feel like you're being genuine. And that's all happening to them on a subconscious level. They're not very unconsciously, you know, very unconsciously. Yes. And I think the reason why I look back at my time in sales and think, fuck, that was a shit job is because I didn't believe in what I was selling. And that's the biggest thing. Like my first job, <laughs> we, we worked for a media company where our job was to partner with large media companies like your News Corps, your Fairfax and sell unsold that their internal sales teams couldn't sell that ad space. So things like radio or a lot of it was newspaper and you'd have to call and I know trying to, I don't even want to sell these small businesses. Yeah. Newspaper, like little newspaper, like no one fucking reads. If you're newspaper. not congruent with it, you'll never, you'll never feel right about exactly. it. Exactly. But then we went, before I left there, we, I moved into the Facebook team because I just started that. And when it was okay, now teaching business, how to use social media and Facebook, everyone's numbers were so much better because they were talking about a product that they really believed yeah. in. And that's so fucking important. Like, and that just goes back to intention and your values as a human being, right? Like the right way to go, the wrong way to go about it, it like, is just money over everything else. Like if you don't care or you don't about the other person, you don't believe in what you're selling, you might be successful for a little bit, but again, I don't know if you believe in karma, but somehow it always tends to come back and even out later Always does. Yeah. You're exchanging energy, right? Like you're like, I got energy. I'm doing energetic things. You got energy. Let's just swap. You know, um, you value my energy more than I value. I value the money. You value the products. Like let's just swap. Um, I think, yeah, it's so important that when you do the energy exchange, you have the good intention um, to, to, to look after and care for that client. So like we have a rule at rival, um, when we work with a client, 
our belief system as our brand DNA is we we are in the business of soul crafting. We don't just make brands. We're crafting a soul and a spirit to their company. We're going to give their company life. Like they have a Frankenstein that's on the table and dead. We're going to bring that thing to life. You know, we're going to animate it. We're going to create character and charisma and charm. And we're going to put culture in their workplace that makes it better for their employees. Like you'd be shocked how many times we've done a rebrand and then the whole, um, their whole organization comes back to life. And then the CEOs are like, we don't know what's going on. People are buzzing just because we changed the paint color on the wall and we get a logo that's lit up out the front. Now, like people just feel different about it. Um, it's almost like the company gets a new outfit and everyone's a bit more confident with the outfit. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's interesting, man. Like the whole idea of energy, it's a weird one, but like, I genuinely think that if you approach people with a pure heart and you are trying to genuinely help them, um, it's not always going to work. It's not like a tactic, but it's just people will pick up on it unconsciously that you're coming from a good place. hundred percent agree. Yeah. Now I want to ask you one last question before we move into just some branding, like a bit of a branding masterclass. Just a few questions, dive deep about branding before we, before we let you go. But the question I wanted to ask is about what you said before, 24 year old guy, you know, flying all around the country, doing events, signing up people left, right and center, speaking on stage, having a lot of money come in that maybe you weren't used to. You start increasing your spending habits, thinking that, oh, this will always be the case. What was going through your head? Like, cause I know a lot of the we're pretty actually evenly split between guys and uh, females and males that, and whatever you are that listen to the podcast. Um, and I know there's a lot of e-com guys, the young ones, particularly that they'll set up the drop first drop shipping store. And all of a sudden they're making 10, 20 K a month and they're buying the fancy watches and cars. And then that all goes away. And then they're fucking massive credit card debt. Their confidence is shot because they created this facade and they started believing it when the money went away they were like, shit, what do I do? I have to hide because I've created this bullshit, you know, character. <laughs> How did that happen for your life? Maybe it's a similar sort of experience. Yeah, I went through that. Yeah. yeah. What, what motivates you to make those decisions and what made you realize, fuck, no, this isn't right? Are you talking about like when I did MLM and I did that? or When you did that, yeah. Like what did I go through? Yeah, like what's motivating you to like just spend all the money and, you know, the fancy cars and that sort At that of point? Stuff? At that point, yeah. Yeah, so like I think because um, in MLM it's, it's kind of like, it's all about like being the proof mm. and like in hindsight, looking back on this, like at that point in time, I was kind of naive to business and you're kind of indoctrinated into the system. And they're like, you know, if you want people to believe you wear a nice suit and if you want them to believe you wear a nice watch and show up in a nice car and show them the money, don't tell them how much money you can make. Right. Cause they'll pick that up from you and it works. I'm not going to lie. Like if someone sees you pull up in a nice car and a nice suit with a nice watch and you're like, I'm making money in this business. Would you like to partner with me? Um, there is some sex appeal to that psychologically, right? Not, a, not for everyone. Some people don't like that, but it was definitely working with the younger crowd. <laughs> yeah. Like a young 25 year old dude to be like, man, we're going to do Wolf of wall street stuff together. I'm in. Right. Um, the problem was, like you said, like I was racking up credit card debt. I was spending money. I didn't have driving a car. I couldn't afford having a watch. I couldn't afford like literally a watch on a payment plan. It was just a flex. Um, and you know, I was speaking on stages of 5,000 people. I was running workshops with 600 people. I was like the guy everyone wanted to talk to. People were getting photos with me. Um, and then boom overnight, like, um, you know, the company goes through these huge changes. I lose a lot of my commissions. Um, the infrastructure changes, they, they really adjusted and set up a new infrastructure that my, my organization was set up for the old system. They changed the, the rules for the, um, 
the positions in the company. And I basically had to do this all over again to adjust to the new system just to get back to where I was financially. Um, so that was a huge struggle for me. I was having massive problems with my downline at 2,600 people you got to manage. Um, most of them weren't active, but 180 of them were hyperactive. So I had a big team and my, my confidence was shot because I was losing my position. Um, other people that were new to the company, um, we're starting off building the new system. So they were getting ahead of me. So like, it just put me in a bad place at that particular time. I was going through a big breakup um, and a lot of like debt was catching up to me. So I, I just kind of hit a wall, man. Like I had debt collectors chasing me down. I had uh, a relationship ending. I had people I owed money to ringing me all the time, asking me for money. And um, yeah, my ego was shot. Um, I didn't have money. I didn't know how to solve the problem. So I kind of, became like a hermit emotionally. I went into depression. Um, it was difficult for me to come to grips with what had happened. And the best thing about that was it forced me to go back into employment. And this was, this was like the bone crushing moment of my story was going from being the guy at the event and at the conference, traveling, the company's paying for things. Um, people having this reverence perception for me to selling vacuums no one caring about me at all, knowing like not being able to share my passion, share my vision for things and just being absolutely completely humbled. Like that was the best thing. Like my, my ego was so big, man. I had to walk through doors, like with my head sideways, like it was the most humbling down to earth bone crushing experience. And it helped me realize how all that bullshit was fake and it wasn't really serving me. And I completely shifted my dynamics of like what business was, what it meant. Um, and I, the good thing was all the lessons I learned from the success I had in MLM, I took it into the gym. I took it into my agency. Um, and I just approached business with almost like half of an MLM brain. Um, but to, to bring this to a point, I think the biggest lesson for me was like realizing that when you're making money and you have momentum, rather than taking money out of that system and spending it on things, put the money back in the system, money like structure. And if you're bleeding money from your business, nothing, I don't know what the energy is, but like when that's happening for whatever reason, everyone that's ever done that, all the econ business owners I know that blew up in 2020 and that collapsed in 2022, um, they went through this roller. They were spending too much money instead of reinvesting into stock reinvesting into new products, reinvesting into marketing, into SEO. Like a lot of the clients I had that went bust, they could have survived if they weren't paying for the holidays, if they weren't trying to put their business on autopilot. Um, but I, I know how painful it is to go through that. I know how tumultuous and how difficult it is. And if you listen to this and you're in that situation, you just have to just kind of swallow a brick, get back into adapting and back into doing the next thing. Cause most millionaires, I think it's 18 or 19 companies that they start before they actually have success. Like most people don't get it on the first rounds. They have, I think the average millionaire has three bankruptcies. Um, so yeah, it's common like businesses. It's a, it's a, it's an ocean of blood in the water. Like it's not an easy place to survive. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. Even, even five years, like we've been really successful and we've done awesome things. And from the outside looking in, people might just think, oh, it's always been so easy, mate. Nah, it's so many ups and downs that you have to navigate. Once you realize we 
we launched a product that wasn't really on the market yet. So we had an amazing first two years were incredible. By the second year, you start having a lot of competition go in. Obviously, lots, loads and loads and loads of competition makes it obviously your copycats is going to get the copycats. Oh, uh, that the amount of lawyer fees I've had to spend. Yeah, we actually got settlements out a bit, but like all that takes you and distracts you down this path where you you're not no longer focusing on you and your business. You're protecting what you've already got and thinking about all these other people trying to st- like rip you off. But you realize you giving so much of your energy to that you're actually double affecting your business. So I had to go through all that. But what I've realized now, five years in, go, go through the cycles, you, you learn so much about yourself as a person mm. and, and, and business. You can't rely on one thing to bring in your money. And now how much we've had to diversify our business, expand new channels. Sometimes uh, retail is absolutely killing it and e-com might slow down or sometimes Facebook's killing it. But, you know, our Instagram influencers aren't working all the time. There's so many things that we've had to do and flex and different push and le- different levers that are pushed yeah. at different times. Because I've said this before on a podcast, but like the IPL space, that home IPL space, we had it, we used to have a, a tracker of all our competition, like on an Excel. And at one point there was like a hundred, like 110 people on the business on that, that were exactly direct competitors running ads in Australia. And we re-looked at that probably about a year and a bit, probably about exactly about a year ago now. And from that time, there was 110, there was only three other businesses that were still going. <laughs> so it's like yeah. the amount of business, like the businesses that would have had that height, couple months of profit and then crashed back down. It's so normal. Yeah. And like, I don't say that to brag. Yeah. Look, we, we made it. We were the first market. We got the best product. So it was, still wasn't easy for us, even with that advantage. It's like, people are going to go through this, you know, mm. how, how, how long did it take you to get your confidence back? Honestly, man, probably about three years. Wow. Like I was so rattled. Um, but yeah, I kind of like, I got to the point where I was like, maybe I'm just meant to have a nine to five, you know, like I was on the cusp of like, maybe I'll just be like a really rad sales guy, yeah. you know, cause when I was at world gym, I was trying to, um, get into owning my own franchise. Um, when I was at Godfrey's, I was considering buying my own Godfrey's store. Like I always wanted to own a business, but it just got to the point where I was like, man, like I, I had a couple different businesses. I tried to start between the MLM thing and this. Um, but I don't know, something snapped in my head at the Gary V event. I was just like, I made a commitment. I made a decision and I, I kind of made the similar decision. I did an MLM. I'm just going to figure this thing out. I'm just going to do it. So like, yeah, I think, you know, your confidence can be shot, but that's business. Like you just got to get back up. You it's, just have to dust yeah. yourself off and just go for it again. It's tough. Like that's, yeah. Well, I've said, obviously I've set systems in place that if I lost the business, I wouldn't have to go get it, get another job. But like, that's the biggest reality hit for so many people, particularly because everyone's young, you know, like some people are young in e-com. They think I'm never going to have a job again. And having to, to, to go do that is really tough to face. Sucks, man. You know Especially I mean? when you're in debt and you're like, Every cent you earn in that job is just going straight into debt. So and it's, humbly. <laughs> it's so yeah. funny. I, I think I even said it on the podcast in the last, in sometime in the last couple of weeks, I said exactly what you said. And I've never heard anyone say that before as well. It's like, I have the gene where I can't put, put up with things that I want to do. I can't yeah, do them. I can't do it, man. So I lasted a couple months at uni. I'm like, fuck, I'm not doing, I barely made it through school. Oh, I did really well in school, but I did everything last Why? Last why do you think you had that rebellious streak in you as well? <sighs> Fuck man, good. That's it's it's a good question. Like my child, my childhood, um, I grew up with my mum and 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 my grandparents, which was amazing. I didn't actually meet my dad till I was fifteen, so I grew up, grew up with my mum and my grandparents until I was five. Mm. The like spoiled, like you wouldn't believe, center of attention, 
So like I had that taste of what it's like to have everything like you want and, and, and everything good and supportive. And then I moved um, with my mom uh, into, into place with like my, my, my stepdad. And then it was just meant to be us. And this is all stuff I found out recently because I started to ask questions about all this um, to my mom. Just meant to be us. And then he had much older kids than me from a previous marriage and shit went on with their mom. So it was meant to be just me, my mom and my stepdad. And then a couple months into that, three older siblings came in that I had no idea who they were. They were strangers. I felt alone. Like I was bottom of like, I wasn't, but I felt like I'm now bottom of the food chain because like they're all related. They all know each other. And then I had my brother. He was part of that family and it was just me. Like I was related, connected to my mum, but only that. So like I had that feeling of what it's like to have what you want and the mm. feeling to, to not. And I was just like, I'm, I'm going to make my life that I just can do whatever I want as much as I can. Yeah. So it's almost like you were the apple of your family's eye. Yeah. Then all of a sudden that completely inverted. Yeah. Like, and sucked, I, man. how old were you when that I happened? was five? Wow. Mm. That's pretty young. So like I had to become really self-sufficient Yeah, as well for, for a long time. And I was always really good at school. Like I would very mature at school for my age and did really well, but only recently getting into a serious more, well, getting into like a serious relationship, you start realizing that character that I created for myself, this, this person that won't take no for an answer that mm. will get shit done, that doesn't need anyone. It, it was great. And it had served me amazingly to that point. Yeah. But then it's like, you get to a certain point and it's like that, although it's got me to where I am, it's, it's actually stopping me in, in other areas of life. And I need to mm. think about that and reflect about that and, and, and allow myself to work to that. So I can open up yep. more, you know, and not open up as in like share things as in like truly emotionally let someone in the, the, the term gets thrown around a lot, emotionally unavailable. Mm. People would always laugh and say, Oh girls, I was dating and say that. And I thought, no, nah, 100% I was. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Same man. I was like, I think even like me and my fiance, she, you know, dude, she's like absolutely incredible. Ellie, she's just a rock solid, incredible mother, amazing supportive partner. And, you know, we fell in love and, but I was not fully emotionally available. And the best thing we did was we did NLP together. We went on this yoga retreat together and, um, we learned about relationship dynamics and like all this stuff. And it took me like three and a half years to like fully trust her, like to completely emphatically just be like, I'm, I'm in complete trust of you. Like, no, there's no, no more secrets. Not secrets is in like a secret. Oh, I'm doing something bad, but it's in like your thought process inside your head. Don't need to be so. Yeah. Like know, things like, like, I'm like, um, like, you know, very, on a very deep unconscious level. Like she's probably just going to leave me. This probably won't work out. You know, um, she wants stuff from me. Like it's just bad programming from my childhood. Right. And I carried this into our relationship and, and uh, it took me three and a half years to like really work on it. I was aware of it by year two, by year two and a half. I was like, okay, I got to do something about this. And then it took like a year after that point to really work on it. Um, and the cool thing is we have open conversations about it. I was very honest with her about it. And, um, but yeah, now she's just like, you know, we're, we're closer than ever, but she was the first person that kind of was, I allowed to get that close to me and it took years. Um, and then I realized like, oh my God, I'm doing this with my friends. I'm oh. doing this with my associates. And then I started doing it with a couple of friends. And then I realized I'm like, what would happen if I just did this with my employees? Like if I just fully let my hair down with my employees and then my relationship with my team just went to another level. Mm. And I was like, man, this whole time I've deprived myself of like beautiful relationships just because I'm 
Like people could hurt me, you it's know. The protection mechanism. Yeah, we've all got it yeah. to certain to different extents. You know what I mean. The best thing I ever did was just like let it go, mm. like just completely just go. Like, so what if someone hurts me? Like, if they do, whatever, you know, it's part whatever. Of life. no big deal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, um, let's jump into the branding stuff. Yeah, because we could talk about all that for another <laughs> hour. Um, but branding, obviously, yeah. to some people that might not fully understand it, they might think branding's just a logo and a color palette. Yeah. You know what I mean? Some words, phrases, whatever. But it's obviously so much more than that. What's what type of questions do, do do brands have to ask themselves and think about when you're in a branding workshop? You know what I mean? When you're trying to figure out not just the colors and the logo, like the things underneath the brand, the things that really make the brand, what sort of questions do people need to ask themselves when crafting their true brand identity? Yeah, great question. Like for, for me, the first thing is like, what what is the crux of the issue you're solving? Like really solving, like for example, Elon Musk an example of what a crux is, there's a great book about it, but um, I think it's called The Crux if anyone wants to read it. Um, but he was looking at NASA and he's like, you're launching these billion dollar crafts in the space, blowing them up and exploding them into the ocean. Like what a waste of money. Um, so he's like, the crux of the issue is you don't have enough fuel to return. So what would it look like if you did take enough fuel, flip the rocket upside down and actually land it? Like that would be the crux of you solving a problem. When you're looking at your marketplace, if you're an e-commerce, for example, and you're selling a product, like what is the crux of the problem you're solving for your user, for the person who's going to your online store? Like in this case, like what is the crux of this issue? Like, could you? For for with us, it was how expensive and un- inconvenient laser hair removal was. Okay. You know, they got to book in to go to their clinic. Yeah. Very expensive, $200 a time. Yeah. They got to go back once a month for eight to, eight to 12 months. Yeah. You got to have people that don't know up. up it's a rigorous a, exercise. A yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. was just inconvenient and expensive. And you're bringing that into someone's home. Exactly. So it's like, okay, once you have that, rad, we've got that. Who's the market? Who the hell is going to buy this? So in your case, like who, who's the target demo? Well, it is quite broad females, honestly, from, from, I would say broadly from 18 to 40, but the ones that we've responded to best yeah. was 24 to 34. Okay, cool. Is there a specific type of woman? No, no. Uh, like we've done branding workshops and stuff. It's like yeah. we have a couple of different, you know, um, personas that, that would go after, but like you got a, cl- you got a cluster of exactly. personas, right? Yeah. So you would know for sure which, which ones of them would buy at what percentage, blah, yeah. blah, blah. like yeah. you would target them with ads, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we know the crux, mm-hmm. we know the cluster of target consumers. Some products have a lot. Culture Kings has huge amounts of product SKUs. Um, other brands and e-com might just have one. They might, you know, sell golf balls or whatever, right? Um, so you have to know who the market is. And when when I'm saying that, it's like, what social media platforms are they on? Yeah. Where yeah. are they hanging out? What are they consuming? Who are celebrities they follow? What do they care about? Like, what do they do day to day? How would you get this in front of them? What messaging would get their attention? Um, so once we kind of know the market roughly and then the crux of the problem we're solving, then it's about like, well, why did you start this business? Why was this a problem that you wanted to solve? what was interesting and passionate about this. If it's about money, rad, but like beyond money, why are we doing this? We find out their internal why, why they're doing it selfishly, but then we have to craft something for the market. Like why are we doing this for the market? Why, why even go to the effort of doing this when we could do anything else? Um, we craft a story. We start to look at like, how do we build a belief system for the brand? So for example, Apple, we think different, Right. Nike, um, we exist for athletes and we want to give them confidence. Like what's the, th- what's the promise to the market and how do you cleverly relay that? 
And the most important thing where a lot of people trip up is they use what we call briefcase words or vanilla values. We want to be an inclusive, diverse, trustworthy, authentic, honest brand with innovative products because we care about the marketplace and we want to empower the customer. It's like, cool. Everyone says that nothing wrong with any of those things. But if the whole marketplace is using the same language um, and language, it's very vague. How do we stand out? So for example, Red Bull, it stands out. Liquid Death, it stands out. Um, You know, Harley Davidson in the motorcycle space, it was the first one to be really rebellious and liberty and freedom oriented. So it stood out. So like what's going to get you to stand out language wise. And people are petrified to do this because they are like, we don't want to alienate and pigeonhole ourselves into one market, but the opposite happens. You become interesting. And in Red Bull's case, by being extreme, like think about the friends that you have that drink Red Bull that don't do extreme sports. You know what I mean? So like just by being interesting, you're going to get a big group of people. The hardest thing for a brand is just diving into like, what's their unique X factor? What's their secret source? What gives their brand a soul that's different to everyone else? Um, That's the hardest thing to extrapolate is like, how do we actually start to get into creative, clever territory and away from generic briefcase, everyone's saying the same thing, territory. If everyone's using the color blue, let's use the color red. If everyone's using... um, feminine, uh, naturalistic, um, messaging. What about if we do modernist contemporary or what if we do rebellious and robust? Like what if we just do something different and every single time we've actually done that, um, it's, it's more than like three or four X that business's attention on social media, their engagement online. Um, but yeah, the biggest thing is just standing out, just being something new, like creating a new feeling, a new concept. Um, bang and body did a really great job being a new thing with their packaging and the name and you got to, you got to create something clever and new in most cases. And how often do brand identities need to evolve? Depends on your market. It depends on your industry, like industries that move really fast is the beauty space moves at lightning speed. Um, But then if you look at the golfing industry, it moves at a slower pace. Um, uh, Then if you look at coffee, that's a slower pace market. So things that are really, Again, it depends if you if you have a young or middle age or an older demographic. Like it really depends on your industry. Yeah. Like for example, um, soft drink companies they're all rebranding at the moment. Um, Sprite rebranded, Seven Up rebranded, Pepsi rebranded. Like every nine to ten years, soda companies rebrands, soft drink companies rebrands. Um, probably every decade, like you need to really revisit what your company's doing, or like if you're realizing your market's shifting, you probably need to rebrand. If you realize your demographics changing, you probably need a rebrand. If you're realizing that your product suite is four times the size of when you started, you might need to update your branding. Um, do you know what a, like a loom cube is? Um, so it's a big e-com brand. They do lighting. It's called a loom cube. It's like a little box that has all these lighting features. Oh, on it. I have seen it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So these guys recently came on board and they're doing much broader SKUs. Their, their company started with one product. Now they're like, we sell like, you know, 60 SKUs. Mm-hmm. So we're doing a brand update for them because it's like, well, they're very, they're drastically different to what made them initially successful. They've become something more. So usually when companies are scaling, they're growing, they're shifting, they're changing. Um, That's usually when I would suggest we need to do a brand tune up, which is just minor tweakage, minor adjustments, tweaking fonts, adjusting colors, like little things, Uh, a rebrand, which is, or a brand update, I should say, which is where we kind of overhaul a bunch of stuff like, 
give them a new social media style or update their website or something. And then a rebrand, which is like, let's change everything except the name. Um, sometimes the name um, where they have to rebuild everything from the ground up, but not everyone needs to do that. Yeah. Cause like the, the journey we've been on, we've, we've been five years now with happy skin. When we started, well, there was no brand strategy. We were both green as we, the way we were approaching it and the way that we were positioning ourselves, we were the first in the market. So it didn't really, didn't really matter. We're like, yeah, we're here to, you know, make it simple and accessible. We weren't whatever. There wasn't really a brand identity except for, Hey, we're here to solve this problem for you. You know what I mean? This is how we did it. And then very quickly for a couple of reasons, it, it out the values of the brand shift, obviously our products were our products. We were, but like, because for me personally, what are, the values that were so ingrained with me was self-belief, self-confidence. And as our content team or as our social media team would start sharing content around body positivity, um, mental health, that just every single time we did that, that caught, you know, that, that, that rung a chord with our, with our audience and they loved it and they got behind it. So very quickly we became our values based around like helping people feel, feel, feel that the best version of themselves. And if that's okay, I don't have hairy legs anymore because I can't afford laser hair removal. Then great. If that's because they read one of our blogs or our posts, an inspirational thing, that was awesome. But that's now four years ago. We, that happened really naturally for us. We didn't have to think about what, what our values, what we're going to stand for. And like you said, that was four years ago. That was kind of at the forefront of, you know, body positivity. That was movement. all new then. That yeah. was all new. Now we're four years down Everyone's the line. Doing it now. Everyone's doing it now, but yeah. it's like you can scroll back on Instagram. We've been doing this shit for forever. Yeah. Which is good. Cause you've built that in your customers' minds. Yeah. I think what's happening is a lot of companies are trying to jump onto it mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it, it doesn't feel resonant. Cause it's like, you guys just had other values now all of a sudden. Exactly. You know, it doesn't feel the same. Yeah. Cause like where, where we're at now, and this is just, I don't, this is an example, but other people can learn from hearing like the thought process that go on. Like now, what makes us different? Like I said, the reason that we've survived, I truly believe, and, and so many others hadn't, isn't necessarily like I know our brand really helped because they see our stuff on, on, on social media and they, I trust us, they like us, they can see the social proofs there. But generally, I, I, the main reason that I think we survived and others didn't, because others, like you said, they tried to copy that thing, copy our exact content style, but we really did invest heavily into product. Yeah. And now compared to all the e-com com- competitors, we've got the best product. So part of our thinking is like, do we lean into like the manscape style of branding where it's all about the tech, what's, what makes you so much better and, and, and lean into that. But then we'd be ostracizing what's got us to where we are. You know, it like, yeah, you have to be careful cause you can't um, like, so there's, uh, so Howard Schultz has a really great masterclass on anyone that wants to learn about what you're talking about. And he talks about, you got to have your core brands and that should never change. The core of your company should maintain its, its, its heartbeat. But everything else, like the way you tactically hit the market, the way you, the way you distribute what you're doing, mm. that can all change. Um, and every six weeks, Howard Schultz, the guy who started and founded Starbucks, he has a meeting which he calls self-cannibalization. They sit down, they have a boardroom meeting, and they say, if we were Starbucks's number one competitor, how would we destroy Starbucks? And they put on a hat as if they, they hate Starbucks, and they're like, how would we take these guys down? And that's how they came up with the free Wi-Fi idea, that's how they, that's how they came up with the, what they're doing right now is they're creating stations that you can electrically charge your car at. So they were the first coffee roastery, um, service company to create like a service station with electrical car chargers. They're like making their own branding around it. They're like, this is the future. This is how we would kill Starbucks. And they just injected it in their business. So you can, you can cannibalize and change all of your marketing tactics, but the core of your company, what it stands for, like why, what we believe in as an enterprise um, what's our culture? 
Um, who's our audience that we're here to devotedly serve? Um, how do we speak to them and how do we want to make them feel? Um, so for example, Lululemon spread into the, um, into the men's market very cleverly and didn't ostracize the female market. Um, and they created their own niche, right? So Lululemon's done this really well. So you can expand into your markets, but you just have to stick to your core fundamentals. So Lululemon never ditched the body inclusivity, body celebration, diversity, um, cultural diversity, photography, and all the rest of it. They kept that, but they just brought the men's yeah, stuff into it. Yeah, you can still it. level up still with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah you just have to, be very, you have to be very clever. Exactly. Um, whereas like, you know, not to go into it, but if you look into what's happening with Bud Light, um, yeah. Such, <laughs> regardless of where you stand on that debate, yeah. we're not even getting into that. I don't want to go into politics, but like- Not at all. They ostracize their old audience. Their hundred year tradition of their audience, they essentially- gave them the middle finger yeah. to go after an audience that don't even drink beer. Yeah. If they were going to drink beer, Bud Light would probably be at the bottom of their list. It's like, I just saw. Thought- if you just break this into stats, like, like 85% of Americans are that, sorry, the 85% of beer drinkers in America are men. Yeah. And they're, they're blue collar, their workforce, their, you know, um, they're, you know, frat boys, high, you know, college parties, whatever, like that. They just gave two middle fingers to that audience and saying, we don't want to be about that anymore. We want to be about this other thing. And again, like, you know, be whatever you want. It's just, that's a great example of what happens when you turn on your market, mm. you know? Um, did you, uh, did you, have you seen the the clip from the interview that their VP yeah. did? Yeah. Covered it for, oh, we need she to said, she said reinvent. On there. Yeah. She had this kind of like almost, no, this is no, no, hey, like, but kind of this smug, you know, energy, like, oh, I'm going to, it's going to be amazing. It just goes to show like you really, really, really need to understand you can want to grow your business, but who is your market right now? Yeah. Know your market, serve them well and stay to your core. And like another, maybe more positive example is like Lego. So I did a post about this the other day and Lego, uh, I think it was in 2000. I might have the dates wrong. We'll look at my post. It's accurate. I think it was 2006 Lego had been losing money for three years in a row. Um, so they were at a profit loss three years consistently. They had 14,000 SKUs um, that were getting ever more complicated with the products. And um, a new CEO stepped in and said, I want to talk to children about what they love about Lego. And they sat down and they spoke to, you know, hundreds of children. And they all said, we just like making cool stuff. So then they realized it didn't matter how complicated or convoluted the box system was. The kids just wanted more blocks, like just basic blocks to make stuff with. So then they cut the SKUs down from 14,000 down to 7,000 and just got a bit more basic with the kids range. They're like, the kids just want more blocks to play with. They don't, they don't want to just build a pirate ship once. They want to build hundreds of things. Mm-hmm. So they realized that they, was, they weren't serving their market like they used to. What made Lego great was I could build whatever I want. But they started to get too restrictive with the blocks and you could only really build one kind thing. Kind of outthinking it. Yeah. And now if you walk into a Lego store, you can just buy blocks. Mm. So they've completely changed their approach to the children's market. Then they interviewed all of the pro adult fans and they were like, yeah, we love Lego, but we like making more mature stuff like, you know, death stars. And, um, you know, we don't want to make children's stuff. So they're like, oh, adults like Lego too. So then they did an adult so they, Lego range. Um, but what helped Lego go from net loss to profit was they regained focus on what made them great in the first place, which is what Bud Light did not do. What made them great is kind of being for the man, you know, being a masculine, like strong hearted brands. They changed that. What that meant people uh, ditched the brand and went to cause or went to other brands. Right. 
But in Lego's case, they got, they regained focus on what made them great in the first place. The second thing is they, they looked at new markets. They're like video games. Maybe we could do partnerships with Harry Potter and Batman and make funny, like, you know, um, collaborations. Hey, let's do like a, let's do a movie about Lego and make it funny for kids. So they just branched into movies, branched into video games. They stayed more relevant because kids weren't just buying toys anymore. They, they were playing video games or watching movies on Netflix. So they just started to spread their wings into new markets. Um, so sometimes to do a rebrand isn't to change anything. It's just to adapt yeah. how you approach the market and how you um, expand into new territory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's always more things you can try, particularly now with the age of the internet. Like yep. There's so many different avenues that you can take it. Now, you mentioned just then uh, Lego interviewed hundreds of, hundreds of children, asked them now. And adults, yeah. And, and adults. Now, most businesses won't do that. Won't, won't, couldn't do that even if they wanted to. No. What can businesses do to, to better understand their their customers or yeah. their target market? So we're working with a, um, a skincare brand right now um, based out of the Gold Coast. She runs clinics um, and we're doing a complete brand overhaul. Um, she's doing really well in e-com, but she has much broader goals. She wants to get into Sephora. She wants to, she wants to become a really big Australian prominent national brand. Um, so when we sat down, we workshopped this with her. It, it became clear to us that we need to know more about her target market. So we said, look, do you know many women that are kind of like the market you're trying to approach? So she wanted moms that had kids that were old enough going back to school and now they're getting back into their skincare routine. So in the beauty space, a lot of moms ditch their beauty routines um, when they first have kids because they're so focused on the child and you know they're, they're at home and they don't have to be at work. There's not as much pressure. So there's a decline in you know women at that particular moment using skincare products, but then it spikes right back up again when the kid's like, you know, a year old, they're going back out, back into the workforce and stuff. So she's like, I want to catch women in that kind of segment into young motherhood. So we built a whole campaign around what it means to be a young mom and celebrating that and coming up with really cool social media campaigns on how to utilize that. Um, but we wanted to know more about her market. So we said, can you get a group of like 30 women and just take him through in groups of three, four or five into Sephora and just, um, get them to shop and then ask them questions around what colors spoke to them, what felt too mature for them, what felt too young for them. Like we just interviewed them to see what fonts they like, what colors grabbed them, what illustrations spoke to them, what felt like it wasn't for them. Um, so once we've collected that data, we're able to sit down and see a pattern emerge between the 30 women and go, oh, they all kind of felt the same way about the same things. Here's the pattern. This is the thin line that we need to stick to. These color hues, these fonts, um, this type of illustration, this type of messaging, this type of naming, this type of logo. Um, so we were able to gather data around what would and wouldn't work, use that data and then translate that data into the design. Not to copy what anyone else was doing, but just to be aware of what was working and what wasn't with that particular demographic. No one's doing this stuff. It's not hard. All, all she had to do was give away some free products, take groups of five women through Sephora and just ask them a little survey over a coffee afterwards. And Literally when we were working on the brand before we launched, any... And part of the reason it was kind of hard to define our target market because like in Australia, there's a laser hair removal clinic in the corner of every single Westfield. Yeah. Everyone does it. So yeah. it was really, but we were stopping people in the street asking them, do you do laser? Have you ever done it? What, why'd you stop? What, what'd you like about it? What didn't you like about it? It doesn't cost money. You just need yeah. to take the initiative. Now, a couple last questions. It's been a long one, but so much fucking, <laughs> so much to talk to you about now. Yeah. What's some of the, back. <laughs> yeah, what's some of the biggest um, mistakes or the common mistakes that you see people making with branding? Using common language, 
not inventing your own world. Like a lot of brands look at what's already happening and they kind of, they say our product is better. So therefore we should win, but they don't brand better. They copy what everyone else is doing with their branding, similar colors, similar logos, similar fonts, similar photography style. They just kind of, and, and I get it. They're not designers, right? So they just go, well, let's just use what already is out there and recycle that into what I have, but my product's better. So therefore I should trump them. Um, no one cares if your product's better. Like it, it's really all about getting attention. Once you've got the attention, then the product caring matters. But if you can't even get the attention in the first place, like what does it matter how good your product is if no one knows that it exists? So most mistakes brands make is they, they stay within common safe territory rather than inventing a new world. Like create, like look at Drunk Elephant, created a dramatically new way of approaching the beauty space, right? Bang and Body, approach it very differently. Esme, different, right? You guys approach the market. Frank Body did that early on Frank as Body, well, right? really well. Um, so you have to kind of create your own new thing. This is what 99% of people don't do because either they don't have design skills, they don't know brand strategy, they don't know the market. I get it, it's cool. Um, that's the biggest mistake. The second one is... Um, not really fully embracing and listening to their target audience. It's like, well, I'm in the beauty space. So therefore I understand what they need. And you can miss so much data by not just going and talking to the target demographic because they will surprise you. They'll catch you off guard. They'll like things you didn't expect them to like because you're engineering your brand to appeal to them, not to appeal to you. So, um, one quick one, and then you can go into the next question. Like Jeff Bezos has this famous story where, um, he sent, and this is, so remember Amazon, they started with books, DVDs, and CDs. That was it. Amazon didn't sell anything else. Jeff Bezos sent out a thousand, an email to a thousand people and just asked one question. Hey, if we sold anything else, what would you buy? And he said, I got a list back of a thousand different things. Someone said windshield wipers, someone said shoes, someone said baby products. He's like, man, I could sell Walmart on my system. So that's when he had that light bulb moment to go, we could turn uh, Amazon into Walmart online. And he did. Um, just because of a, an email he sent. So I think the power of listening to your target consumer is really powerful and most people don't do it. Those two things. Yeah, that's fucking, I saw that when I, when I was doing my research, that Bezos thing. I'm like, fuck, can you imagine that? Thinking <laughs> yeah. what happened next. Um, like you said, yeah, maybe we'll get you back. I know you're writing a book now, right? Yep. We'll get you back whenever that's released so we can talk about all that. But one last question because it's, I have so many more, but we end, we end with one last question. It's where so many people get stuck. Um, and it's really important, but it's also like at the end of the day, people's delay launching their business for months and months and months because they can't decide on a business name. Right. Do you have a formula or any advice for how to pick a, a, a business name? Is it something you should stress about for months? Is it less important than some people may think? Where do you stand with that? If you're starting, it doesn't matter as much unless it's an e-com. Um, I think if you're doing a service-based business, you could just use your name. Um, but if you're doing e-commerce, you kind of have to nail it. Um, it's pretty painful to do your packaging, to do... Yeah, so there's yeah. some cases where it doesn't matter. Do you want me to stick to e-commerce or do you want me to stick to general? We'll, we'll, we'll focus e-com because I feel okay. like most people kind of e-com for here, yeah. For e-com, I would say that like, if you can figure out the crux, like what's the problem you solve that no one else solves? Like you've got to figure out what that is. In your case, you figured it out very, very well. Number two, know your audience. So you went out, you interviewed people on the street, very smart. So once you have those two things, you have to engineer a name that they would like, not what you like, not what you think is rad. You have to create a name. So a couple of simple rules with naming, less than four syllables, or they'll shorten it for you. So if your name is 
Um, and typically three is best. So three syllables is a good place to be. If you have two words that adds complexity to your brands. So idealistically in e-commerce where possible, no more than two words, um, no more than four syllables. Like yours is less than four syllables, bang and body, bang in body, like four. So I think if you can say to four syllables, it has to have good mouthfeel. Is it awkward to say, does it feel clunky, like clunky falling out of your face or bang and body? It's like, you can say it like that. It's a quick, easy thing to say as may easy to say, easy to remember. Is it memorable? Is it distinctive? Or does it sound like something? So if I started a website called squatify.com, like it just <laughs> sounds like Spotify, right? So you have to linguistically separate yourself. You have to make sure, is it available on a.com? If you, if we can't get a.com, we're not interested. Um, if, and then you can't just go, I got a great name, but is it a.com? Is it another thing? So we had another brand called cosmology. When you type it in, it comes up with Neil deGrasse Tyson's documentaries. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, unless you have $2 million to spend, you're not going to get ranked number one on Google. So how much is it going to cost that name to own it on Google? Does someone else already own it for another thing? So you have to find a name that is unique. It's distinctive. It's ownable. Like you can actually own it. You're not competing with people for trademarks. Um, look up your trademarks. Social media is not as important because I think everything under seven letters is taken on Instagram. Like if you have seven letters, it's probably taken on Instagram. Um, you'll have to add a second word. So don't worry about social media having the perfect name. It's nearly impossible to get, um, but just get your .com um, and then buy any additional domains you can. Buy the .co, buy the .net, buy the .io, buy the... Because I guarantee if you have this real estate on one.com, your competitors could get something really similar that's close to it. Yeah. You got to buy that territory and like, yeah, it's going to cost you money, but I own every rival, like rival.blog, rival.io, rival.net, rival.co. Like I bought all of them. Mm. Um, I was like, no one's having this. This is mine. Um, but yeah, good mouthfeel, memorable, distinctive, ownable, unique, um, and less than four syllables where possible. Mm. Yeah. The trademarking thing really important for e-com as well. Big time, man. Yep. Yeah. I know tons of e-com brands that don't have trademarks. They realize uh, a rapper has their name. Well, like one guy we're working with, he's like, man, a rapper has my name. A Twitch channel has my name and they've trademarked their stuff. And he's been running for years and we have to completely change his name. Yeah. And he's lucky they didn't find him first. Yeah. That's what I, I said to him. I'm like, dude, you, yeah. you're lucky because he's scaling. And I'm like, if you scale anymore, man, like cease and desist is going to come, come knocking. Yeah. You know? I've seen it so many times with Ecom, man. So yeah, we got to be very careful in e-commerce because um, if anyone else is doing online selling, you're in their category. Exactly. Yeah. So even if it's, we do a different thing, it's like, it's still e-commerce. So like better safe than sorry. Um, but dude, a good name is hard. I would suggest volume. Don't just write down three or four ideas. When we do naming, we write down sometimes, you know, a thousand, 2000 names, wow. like just through volume, just brained up as many possible concepts as you possibly can and stretch yourself and do it in sprints and then come back through and highlight things you like. Exactly what I've done. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause yeah. what happens is when you go through back, through, you start combining things like that could mm -hmm. work with that and we could combine this. So like the more you get, the easier it gets to write more. Um, and then you just basically process of elimination and then try to where possible, get people that are kind of like your target demo to feedback on what they think is rad and what resonates with them. Yeah. I have a Dame. We've just done almost two hours. Thank you so much brother. Um, yes, so much information, education about branding, about business on your Instagram. So where's the best place for people to find you? Yeah, just Dane Walker, D-A-I-N Walker uh, on Instagram, TikTok or uh, YouTube 
or on LinkedIn. And they'll be able to find Rival yep. and everything like that through you. So really quickly, what's next? I know you got the book coming. Yep. When's that next year, year after launch? When do you think that'll be out in the market? Yeah, so uh, we're anticipating within the next six months, it'll be completely written mm-hmm. and in the process of being produced. Um, we're also working on a live event here in Sydney. So coming up in August, we're going to do a, a live event for anyone that's a personal brand that wants to know how to, awesome. within a three-day bootcamp, how to build a personal brand. Um, but other than that, I just have a lot of fun on social media. I have a lot of fun, you know, hanging out with people like you. So um, yeah, if anyone wants to know anything, just hit me in the DMs and we can chat about anything. Awesome. Really do encourage that because just doing my research and you, I save so many posts on your Instagram as well, just for myself, or like hearing different things, perspectives, thoughts and branding and content and ideas that you've never thought about before. So really do mean it when I say a branding expert, done so many amazing things, so many more to come. So thanks again, man. And uh, excited to see what, what happens next. Thanks for having me on your couch, man. Cheers, bro. <laughs> well done. Two hours. That's one of the longest ones we've done. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or you got something out of it, do yourself a favor, do me a favor, do your friends a favor and share this with them and they can come along on this journey with us. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.